you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, I am beyond excited uh, to get back into Ephesians now that it's been at least a whole month uh, since we've been in this. Uh, We've been walking through the demonstration of the power of God, the first illustration that Paul gives, uh, which is the life of Jesus, uh, which goes down uh, from verse, really the end of verse 19 down to the end of chapter 1. And just for the sake of context and just so it's in our mind, I'd like to read uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 down into the chapter. Uh, This is what Paul says. He says, I pray that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. What an amazing passage. Uh, we were looking at verse 19 several, several sessions ago, and we were talking about the overwhelming power of God. And we talked about the fact that what Paul is doing in verse 19 is he's using four distinct Greek words for the word power to describe the power of God. And the inconclusion is, is that the power of God really is indescribable, and you cannot describe the power of God. And so, as Paul's beginning to articulate this reality, okay, what is the power of God and how, you, how do you describe the power of God, he says, well, let me give you some illustrations. And again, he, the first illustration we've been walking through, which is the power of God demonstrated in the life of Jesus, which again, he, he starts by talking about the fact that God performed or worked in Christ this overwhelming power. Now, we've been breaking up this section into several little subsections, if you will, and uh, for just the sake of clarity. Let me just give those to you again. Uh, Verse 20, uh, I am calling the performance. It's this idea that he performed this power in the life of Jesus. Uh, In verse 20, the end of verse 20 through verse 21, I am calling the position that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is this position far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. And then the end of verse 21 through verse 22, um, I am calling the preeminence which is this idea that, that he has a name above all their names, uh, that all things have been put in subjection under his feet, uh, that, that he is in the preeminent position, that he is the supreme, the preeminent one. Uh, in verse 23, or the end of verse 22 to verse 23, I'm calling the person, speaking about the fact that Christ is the head and the church is his body. And then the end of verse 23, I'm calling the purpose, which is that whole idea of the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. Uh, last time we were together, we were looking at the beginning of this idea of the person, the fact that Christ is the head of the church, which is pretty amazing. And uh, today what I want to focus on is the fact that we are the body. And then next week, woo, just think about this, we are going to wrap up chapter one next week, uh, which is quite amazing. I think next week is episode number 38 in Ephesians. So we are, we are finally getting done with chapter one. We're Excited to jump into chapter 2, which will probably take us just as long as chapter (laughs) 1. Nonetheless, 
Uh, last time we were looking again at this idea of Jesus being the head. And again, it comes from verse 22, which says that he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body. Isn't it a marvelous thought? Again, this is, I'll just do some review really quick. But isn't it an incredible thought that God gave Jesus as the head over all things to the church? You realize that Christ is in a position over all things in the entire universe. That he has the authority, the dominion, the control, the sovereignty over all things in the entire universe for the purpose or the advantage of the church. Which, by the way, all comes from that, I, that idea of the word gave. Uh, the word there, gave, uh, literally is understood in the Greek as for the advantage of. And I love the fact that it's in the aorist active indicative. So, of course, all the nerds get excited. But for those who are not a nerd, an aorist active indicative, what it, what it signifies, uh, an aorist uh, is, it's a don't worry the, the, the easiest way to understand it is don't worry about the time frame. Is it past tense, present tense, future tense? The aorist is, is almost like the non-tense. It's like don't focus on, it, on when it's happening. Focus on what's actually taking place. And we always translate it in the past tense. But the idea here is more of, well, is he, has he been given to the church in the past? Don't worry about that. Well, is it for the present? Don't worry about that. Is it for the, uh, for the future? Don't worry about that. Focus on the fact that he has been given his head. And the fact that it's in the indicative is amazing because this is not up for question. This is merely a simple statement of fact. So the fact that Christ has been given to the church, the fact that he is in this position above all things is to the advantage of the church. Well, when is he the advantage? Don't worry about the when. Focus on the fact that he is the advantage. And truth be told, he's always the advantage, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Now, when we were looking at this idea... Uh, we were giving three, last time, we were, we were giving three aspects of what it means for him to be the head. And I just want to give those to you really quick. If Jesus is the head, it means that he has all the authority, the dominion, and leadership. Not just over the church, but over all. That as the head, he is in this position of control and authority and leadership and dominion over all things. And that is to the advantage of the church. Which, the opposite of that makes sense too, that if he was not the head you realize that that is a disadvantage to the church, which is an interesting thought. But the fact that he is the head means that he has all the authority, the control, the dominion, the sovereignty, the lordship, the leadership over all things, specifically the church, which is his body. Uh, the fact that he is the head also means, number two, that he is to be our provision and that we are to live in perfect union with him. That, that if he really is the head, the head is the control center of the body. That whatever the head determines, that's what the body does. And if we are his body, that means we get to come under his provision. We get to come under his authority and that we get to have perfect union with him, which is an amazing thought. So just as my body has perfect union with my head, we as the church are to have perfect union with him who is our head. And then number three is this beautiful thought that he is our source of blessing. In other words, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Bible, every time blessing was going to be given, it was usually through the head, right? You anointed the head. You, you put a hand on someone's head for the anointing. And if he is our head, you recognize that he is our source of blessing. I wish it makes sense to you if you've been following this Ephesians series, because as we were walking from verse 3 down to verse 14, 
which is the blessing section, we kept saying over and over and over that every single blessing that God has for you is found in one single place, which is Jesus. So it's not that I get Jesus plus a blessing. Jesus is my blessing, which makes sense if he's my head, because as the head, he's the source of that blessing. So again, that was, that was all reviewed. To get into this point of where we're at in verse 23, which is the fact that we are his body. Isn't it interesting that you cannot separate a head from its body? That a head without a body is not functioning. A body without a head is not functioning. That a head needs a body and a body needs a head. And if we are his body, do you realize that it, we, it demands that we have a head? which is the enabling, controlling center for the body. And again, as the head, he becomes our authority. He becomes the enabling power of our, of our life. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give three ideas. If we are the body of Christ, which we are, if we are the body of Christ, what does that actually mean? So let me just give you three ideas. Uh, number one, if we are the body of Christ, it means that, or we must be reminded, that we are not individual bodies we are one body. I love the fact that in this passage, the understanding of the, the church being the body of Christ is singular. It's not that every single local church congregation is the body of Christ. It's not like, well, you're a body, and you're a body, and you're a body, and you're a body. It's we're all one body, which is really significant to me. Uh, in, <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 2, which we're going to get to eventually, probably in a couple years from now. But in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, at, the very end, <clears throat> at the end of chapter 2, he's talking about this idea that, that we are being built up into a building, chief, uh, Christ being the chief cornerstone, and we are all these stones fitted together in the building. You realize that as an individual, and, or as a local congregation, we are merely stones in the one building. It's not that we are each individual buildings. We are one building. We are one temple for the Lord. Uh, if you turn over to, you don't have to, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, when Paul talks about the fact that you are the body, sorry, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you is plural. He's talking about all y'all. <clears throat> so here you, here you are in the, in the church, and he's, he's talking to the, all the members of the church, and he says, all you guys are the temple, which is singular. Isn't that an amazing thought that here we are as individual Christians, here we are who go to a whole bunch of congregations around the entire world, and yet we are singularly the body of Christ. There's only one body of Christ, and all of us together make up one body. Do you know how significant that is? And maybe to put it another way, <clears throat> do you know how sad it is that there is so much strife and there's so much division and there's so much angst amongst the one body? That's like my right hand yelling at my left hand by the fact that it only has five digits. Or my left hand getting frustrated at my, my right foot. Or, you know, my belly button getting frustrated with my, my ear or whatever. <clears throat> Do you realize there should not be strife and division amongst the body? Just like your body shouldn't have strife and division amongst the body. Right, let me give you a few passages. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5 Paul writes, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul writes, and this is a bit longer, so you, just, but just listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse, uh, starting with verse 12. Paul says, for just as the body is one, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the, <clears throat> if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Isn't it an amazing thought that Paul says there is one body, and just as you have one body with many members, you realize that is a picture of the church. That it's not that each of us are individual temples. We are in one sense. But it's all of us together are the temple. We are all being built up into one building. We are all together one body called the body of Christ. It's called the church. If that is true, you realize there should be unity in the body. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 17. <clears throat> I've been just pondering this for, for weeks now, and I've been so convicted with John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17, of course, is the high priestly prayer, and, and Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples in John 13, and then gives this incredible discourse in John 14, 15, 16. And here he is, he, he's, he's heading toward the garden, and he's praying this incredible high priestly prayer. And as he begins to pray the high priestly prayer, uh, he says some things that are so uncomfortable, especially in our modern day. Uh, look at John 17, verse 20. Uh, he says toward the end of the prayer, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me th through their word, that they all may be one. Do you realize that Jesus' prayer for his disciples not just for the 12 then, but for all disciples. He's, he makes that clear in the prayer. He says, I'm not just praying for, for these, the 12 alone, but also for those who believe in me. <clears throat> but get this, that they may be one. That there should be a unity amongst the believers. Now, that for me is just, that's crazy. But listen as he goes on. How are they to be one? Jesus clarifies, as... Oh, get this. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So get, get what Jesus is saying. He says, God, I, I, Father, I'm praying that you would take all believers and make them one. How, how are they to be one? In the same way that you and I are one, they are to be one. <laughs> Do you realize how one the Father and Jesus are? They are one. I mean, you, you cannot even separate them. And we, we talk about them separately, 
But as the triune God, you cannot separate the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are one. And Jesus praying, Father, hey, just as you and I are one, would you let them come into such a unity and a self-sacrifice that they too may be one? But then get this at the very end of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How is the world going to believe that the Father has sent Jesus? Oh, they're going to see us, the body of Christ, as one. Now that is so convicting. Because that we don't live that we don't live this way. Now Jesus goes on in verse twenty three or verse twenty two. <laughs> he says, "I have given them the glory which you gave me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. Get this: that they may be in perfect unity, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me." You realize that Jesus is saying, hey, how is the world going to know that you sent me? How is the world going to know that you have loved them? How is the world going to know? Jesus says, oh, that's easy. They are going to be one. That they are going to have perfect unity. Now, if you were to describe our modern church culture today, that's not how I would describe it. I would describe it with division. I would describe it as frustration. I would describe it as this group against this group. I would describe it as, well, there's these, these people talking bad about these people and these people talking bad about these people and, and I don't want to associate with this group and I don't want to associate with that group and I don't want to be misunderstood this way. And, and the one thing we are not known for is our unity. And unity is merely the expression or the result or the reality of true love. If you go back a couple chapters, John, uh, John 15, verse 17, Jesus says, These things I command you, that you love one another. You realize that if, you, if we were truly loving one another, it would force unity. We're not talking uniformity. We're not talking we all get the same haircut. We're not saying we all like the same flavor of pizza. We're not saying that we, you know, we do all the same stuff. We like all the same stuff. We're not talking uniformity, but we are talking unity. That in the midst of all your personality and your quirks and your whatevers, that, that I somehow look past your problems and I see what God sees in you. And, and I am willing to die to myself and I'm willing to come alongside and wash your feet and serve you. Why? Because, hey, we are to be one. That I am to meet your need. L- look at Philippians chapter 2. That, that, that I should not be selfishly trying to one-up. I should not be you know, selfishly trying to build my life up, well, what should I be doing? Ah, thinking more highly of you than I do of myself. That I am to live in humility, that I am to to come and serve you. Uh, John 13, 35, I love what Jesus says. He says, by this all will know that you are my disciples. Oh, how are they going to know that we are his disciples? Oh, if we have correct doctrine. That's not what Jesus says. Though, hey, we should have correct doctrine. Well, how are we going to know that we are his disciples? Oh, Jesus says if you go to church. And hey, we should go to church, but that's not how the world's going to know that we are his disciples. Oh, I, I know how the world's going to know we're his disciples. We, we, we wear Christian t-shirts. Jesus says, no, that's not how the world is going to know that you are my disciples. How is the world going to know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ? Love. One for another. Which somehow creates this unity and as he prays in John 17, 
that we are to have perfect unity so that the world will know that the Father has sent Jesus. And I wonder if the reason why the world doesn't know that the Father has sent Jesus, I wonder if part of the reason why the, the world is so antagonistic against Jesus in our modern day is, is it because we are so antagonistic against each other even though we are one corporate body? And yet we are called to live in unity and love. And Paul says, do you not recognize that you are the body of Christ? He is the head. Which means that we should have this perfect unity and fellowship and love one for another. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it, it was really interesting as I studied this some, some time ago. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact that that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile. That he himself is our peace. And it dawned on me, you realize that when we get to heaven, there is not going to be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There's going to be Christians. That's awesome. If I can put that maybe in our modern church context, do you realize, I'm, I'm going to be stepping on someone's toe, but do you realize that when we get to heaven, there is not going to be Baptist Christians, there are not going to be Lutheran Christians, Presbyterian Christians, Pentecostal Christians, Methodist Christians, there is just going to be Christians. And we are not going to have heaven divided up by segments or quarters or, or, or these areas of, well, those are the Baptists and those are the Lutherans and those are the Presbyterians and, and those are the Pentecostals and, and, those are the, and those are the... We are going to be gathered together as one body, full of love, in perfect unity. Do you realize we're to have that now in the church, which is his body? We are one body. And yeah, that doesn't mean we're going to agree with everybody on every little tenet and, and little doctrinal nuance. I understand that. But you realize that, that we are to come together and wash each other's feet. And the world is to know that Jesus is who he is because they see the love and the unity that the church has one for another. And I think the one downside of all the technology and all the media and all the social stuff that we have is the fact that it has not brought us together. It has only ripped us apart as the church. And this group is against this group, and that thing is against this thing. And, and the world is not seeing Jesus. And yet that is the thing that he was praying to the Father for. The longing of Jesus' heart is that we would be unified and that we would be one body. So back in Ephesians, then, if, if, if we look at this idea, Jesus is the head, if we are his body, what that means, or we, what we must remember as his body, is that we are one. We are not individual bodies. We are not Lutheran body and Baptist body and Presbyterian. We are one body, the body of Christ. And we are a Christian. We are a church. Uh, secondly, not just the corporate, not individual thing, but we also got to remember that we are, as the body of Christ, we are not to be autonomous, but dependent upon the head. And I know I've already said that, but I think it bears repeating. You realize that the body cannot just do whatever the body wants to do. The body has to come under the in submission to the authority and the control, the empowerment of the head. That, that we as the body are not just to do whatever we want. We as a body are to humbly come and live under the, the functioning, the reality, the empowering of the head, which is Jesus. I think that's really important. 
so, so oftentimes, you know, that we gather together as a church and we get into a meeting and as leadership we make this decision, all right, we're going to go do this and we're going to start a kids ministry. Hey, we're going to buy buses and, and we're going to go out and win the, we're going to win the community. And then we go, oh, we probably need to involve God in this. And so we spend a few minutes in pr- prayer and say, oh, God, would you come and would you bless the bus ministry? <laughs> do you know what that's called? Independence. That, that is us trying to do something outside of the flow of what the Spirit of God is doing in us. Wouldn't it be interesting if we just, as leadership of the church, just got together and says, all right, let's just seek the head. Let's just see what he wants to do. And as we're seeking him, allow him to reveal his purpose and his plan for us, his body. And I understand that, that, that we're all corporately one body. And yes, he's going to use each individual church distinctly. I, I, I am all for that. But you realize that we cannot just function autonomously from our head. We must live filled with the Spirit of God and dwelt by Him and empowered by His life. Uh, if I can change the metaphor uh, just a little bit, <clears throat> you realize that we're not just a body. If, if we could use the illustration of the vine and the branch, you know, John 15, Jesus says that the branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself. That the only way that the branch is ever going to bear fruit is when it abides and remains connected to the vine. And the life sap of the vine flows out into the branch and then produces the fruit. You realize the branch isn't the one producing the fruit. I mean, the fruit's coming out of the branch, but it's not the one producing the fruit. It's the vine and the life of the vine in the branch that produces the fruit. See, the branch cannot live autonomous from the vine. It must be dependent. It must abide. It must remain. It must surrender to. It must cling to. It must refuse to depart from that vine. And when the branch just holds tight to the vine, it will produce fruit. Do you realize that's true in the church? That, that it's not, well, let's go and produce some fruit, and hey, let's go have the life of Christ, and let's go do our, our programs. This is, hey, could we allow the head to do something in and through us that we, in and of ourselves, cannot do? I, I love what one, one commentator said. He, he says, if you take the Old Testament idea of a head and combine it with the Greek understanding of the, how the medical, the Greeks in the medical world understood in the New Testament, he says what it means for the head to be over the body, is that the head is to be the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power, the mainspring of the body's activity, the center of the body's unity, and the seat of the body's life. That's a great way to describe the head in relationship to the body. That we are not, we're not doing our own thing as the body, that we are coming under the head, and he, as our head, is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining power, mainspring of activity, center of the unity, and the seat of our life. That's him as our head. So again, it's not just this individual thing, it's this corporate idea. It's not just, hey, let's be autonomous, it's this, hey, we are to be dependent. But third, this idea of if we are the body, you realize it means that we are the hands and the feet, that literally the body of Christ to the world today. I love what William Barclay said. He says, The church is quite literally hands to do Christ's work, feet to run his errands, and a voice to speak his words. The head needs a body to work and function. The head cannot do and accomplish what the head wants to do without a body. And we are the body. 
So we get to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus to our world today. And our world desperately needs Jesus. We don't, we don't need mimicking. We literally need Jesus. Well, how, how are they going to see Jesus? The body. I don't know how far to push this, but it's so interesting to me. You, you, again, don't go crazy with this, but it seems to be that what was going on physically in the life of Jesus 2,000 years ago is the exact same thing he wants to do in his body today called the church. In other words, when you, when you look at the New Testament and you see what was happening in the physical body of Jesus back then, I think that's the exact same thing he wants to do in his body today. Now, I understand we don't, <laughs> we don't bring salvation. We don't create salvation. He did that. He, that's been accomplished. But you realize that he was constantly bleeding, suffering, dying, pouring his life out, rolling up his sleeves, meeting the needs of other people, proclaiming the gospel and the good news, declaring that the kingdom has come. Hey, giving himself to, the, to meet the needs of the destitute, the orphan, the, the widow, the needy. You realize he wants to do that today through us. That we get to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to this world. Who's going to rescue? The church. Who's going to proclaim? The church. Hey, who's going to meet the needs? The church. Why? Because we are the body of Christ to our world today. I don't think it's by accident that Jesus said, hey, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. That, that I, I did not, I, I'm not here for you to meet my needs which should have made sense. He is God. And if God showed up, God should have said, hey, meet my needs. That's what all the pagan gods used to say. Had the, reason, the reason why all the Gentiles and all the pagans were doing all the stuff that they were doing is because they had this idea that the gods were, were forcing all these demands and that they had to serve the gods. Our God, the true God, comes and says, I, hey, you don't have to serve me. I've come to serve you. Do you know how crazy that is? Do you know how backwards that is? And Jesus says, I did not come to be served. I have come to serve. That's the same thing he wants to do in the church today. And yet, what do we do as a church? Oh, we show up and we go, hey, who's going to meet my needs? Hey, who's going to sing the songs that I want to sing? Hey, who, who's going who's who's to fulfill? Who's going to listen? Who's, who's going to do for me? Rather than, what would it look like if a whole group of people got together and says, you know what? This is not about us. In fact, let's just get together and serve one another. Hey, let's just get together and meet one another's needs. Hey, let's get together and just win the community. Do you know what we'd have to call those people? Probably Christians. Uh, I've been pondering this idea for the last week. Uh, I heard this thought on a, on a podcast, and it's just been, it's been so convicting. He says, isn't it interesting that a servant, that when you, when you get to the reality or a definition of a servant, a servant will always give more than they will get. That a servant will always pour out, the servant will always give far more than they'll ever receive. And the likelihood of a, of a servant is they will always be taken advantage of. That is so interesting to me. Do you know what Jesus was willing to do? Jesus was willing to be taken advantage of. Jesus was willing to give far more than he ever received. Jesus was willing to take on our sin for us. And we, we, he's willing to be taken advantage of. Are we 
And if we are his body, wouldn't it be interesting if we did not care about position? Wouldn't it be interesting if we did not care about prestige? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't care about popularity or riches or celebrityism or whatever whatever's going on in the modern church today? Wouldn't it be amazing if we just says, you know what? I'm willing, I, hey, I am not here to be served. I'm willing to serve. Hey, I am here to pour my life out. Hey, I, I recognize that I will be giving far more than I'll be getting. By the way, that's actually not fully true as a Christian <laughs> because you will never give as much as you've received from Jesus. But hey, are you willing for the world to take advantage of you for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to take up your cross daily? Are you willing to bleed, suffer, and die as the body of Christ on behalf of this world, just like he was 2,000 years ago. You are the body of Christ, which means we have the privilege of being the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of our Jesus in this world today. And he still has the same goal. He wants to win the world, but he needs a body. Paul says he is head over all things. He's in a position of authority of the, over the entire universe for the advantage of the church, which is his body. Could we recognize that the fact that Jesus is sovereign over all things, the fact that he is the preeminent one, is actually to our advantage? And then he has come to indwell our lives through the Holy Spirit. This is to our advantage. And we get the privilege of being the body of Christ, not you, yes you, but, but all y'all, as they would say in the South. <laughs> not y'all, but all, all y'all. Right? All of us, together, in perfect unity, are to showcase the reality of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that is so convicting in my life. Because I think so many times, I, I think of it in terms of me, and what I can get, and what I can do, and what... And then I become so individualistic and, and I become so self-centered so and, and I become so, so wrapped up in myself rather than realize that, that this is actually more about you than it is about me. And you should say, you know what, that's right. This, this should be about all of us, not, not, not about me. And See, what would it look like if we really were the body of Christ? It would turn the world upside down, wouldn't it? And when he turned over to Acts 17, 6, I, they grab this guy by the name of Jason, and they bring him in, and the accusation against Jason is he's one of these guys who turned the world upside down. How did they do that? I think they were living as the body. I think they were living in this, in this unity and this love, and, and they were literally the hands and the feet of Jesus, and no matter where persecution pressed them to, they were proclaiming his life and his goodness. And when the world looked upon how these people were treating each other and how they were living, they just could not explain it outside of Jesus. And they says, you guys had to be Christians. <laughs> and we won in. What, what if that would happen today? I think what the world needs today more than anything is to see Jesus again. How are they going to see Jesus? His body. Let's pray. Lord, oh Lord, we want to be your body. We are your body. But Lord, I think we've done a pretty poor job as, as your body. Lord, we have more strife and contention and frustration with members of the body than we do having love and unity and peace. And Lord, yet the prayer that you prayed 
is that we would be in unity, in perfect unity, and somehow when we got together in love and in unity, the world would know who you are. That, that we get to have the privilege of being your hands and your feet and your mouthpiece to this world. And Lord, I repent. I've done a pretty poor job of that. That I've been selfish and I've lived for myself and I have catered to my needs and my wants and hey, how are people going to serve me and, and how's the church going to meet my needs and rather than recognizing I get, to, I get to be a part of the body which means this isn't about me, this is about the body and, and, and how, hey, how do we glorify the head and how do, how do we showcase the head and function under the authority of the head and so Lord, I repent and Lord, I want to come in perfect unity with you and I want to live in this attitude of surrender and abiding in dependence upon you. And, and somehow could you give me a great love for the church? That somehow you would, you would cause relationship and to be, to be rest, restored and that you would bring us back together, not as clumps and not as cliques and not as little groups, but, but as one body. That if we're going to spend eternity together, we might as well start enjoying each other now. And Lord, would you, would you take the division and would you take the frustrations and would you take the anger and would you take the misunderstandings and would you, would, you, would you begin to bring us into alignment, into one focus, which is the head. And Lord, let us not, let us not get so distracted on the little things. And I know they're not little, but, but God, we, we are so, we're so antagonistic over the little doctrinal nuances and we forget the bigger declarations like love. <laughs> Oh, forgive us as the church today, Jesus. And somehow through the time that we are in and the season that, that we are pressing through, somehow could you, could you bring us together in a way that has been unlike any other time in human history. And may the world see you as the head because they see you in the body. And they see how we are functioning as a body. Lord, I realize it's not going to start corporately. It's going to start individually with me. That, hey, if revival is going to break out, it's not going to start out throughout a nation unless it starts with the individual. So, Lord, I'm willing to start, with he start here. Start with me. And do whatever is necessary in my life to bring this about. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. We just give you the praise and the glory. Thank you for being our head. Thank you for the privilege of being your body. Just give the praise and the glory, Jesus. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.